0: Okay, so good morning, everyone. We are back again. We're so thankful for uh, just being back again and uh, you know, done with those extra long breaks, which we did not need to have. Those were really at a, an inopportune time for us as a class. But hopefully what that meant for you, however, is that you had opportunity to really dig in and spend some extra time on extra homework. Am I seeing any yeses, amens, and smiles out there? I hope. Um, I, I know for me personally, I was saying before we started the, the video that it's dangerous to allow me to have three weeks to put in it, time in on any homework, <laughs> because then I've got too much to cover with you all. And so I just pray that the Lord is going to really guide me to stay on task with the things that I think that I would like to show you this morning. And I'm going to trust that because you had extra time, that you will have on your own really had an opportunity to research and study out those things that you may have had questions concerning. However, with that all said, please know that if you have questions along the way, stop us and ask those questions. It is inevitable that any question that might be dancing around in your head or any any insight that you're seeing that's applicable to the conversation, that it could be something that someone else really needs to hear. So just trust that the Holy Spirit is also working through each of you as students. And then this is an iron sharpening iron situation. And that's what we want, because that's what we're here for as students of God's word. Okay, so we are now ready to start with our uh, fourth letter. This letter is to the Church of Thyatira. Um one of the things that I like to remind students of on a regular basis is of those two basic principles that inductive Bible study are basically founded on. And these are the two pillars. They were asking me earlier about my funny looking trees over here. These are pillars, you know, on my, on my sheet that I'll be sending out by email to you all. It, it actually looks like a Greek column. I'm just not that great of an artist. <laughs> But we do have two pillars. Does anybody remember what the two pillars are that we stand on for uh, observing uh, scripture as an inductive student? There you go. That context rules for interpretation and... So that's about the context. And what's the other thing you never violate? Your known doctrines. Very good. So I knew I could draw it out of you. Good. So because of that i as i was looking at the homework this past three weeks um what i kept seeing was this conflict of possible interpretations of what was being said to each of these individuals was anybody struggling with that where where, where he's speaking to the church and he's talking about uh, the judgments that he's going to bring upon those who do repent and don't repent and you know What might have been some of your questions uh, concerning that? Who do you think he was speaking to when he said, I'm going to throw you on a bed of sickness. I'm going to kill your children. I'm going to throw them into uh, tribulation. Who was he speaking to? Those who follow Jezebel. Okay. Those who follow Jezebel. Okay. But the letter is to who? The church. The church. So are these believers or non-believers? Yes Yes and yes, we don't know, right? See, this is the dilemma. Now, the reason I bring that up is because there are a lot of books that this happens in. Hebrews was one that really kicked my rear end as we were going through it because there was this constant tug of war back and forth within me of, is this addressing a believer? Is this addressing a non-believer? what kind of judgment is this? Is this the kind of judgment that's discipline or is this the kind that is, um, you know, eternal death kind of judgment, right? So I kept struggling back and forth with this. So here's what I decided to do this morning for us as precept teacher uh, students. I want to demonstrate to you how it is that these two pillars are absolutes for you no matter whether you can really come to understand which it is is it a believer is it an unbeliever but your real question should be number one what is the context of the book and number two don't violate your known doctrines no matter what conclusion you end up drawing as long as it doesn't violate a known doctrine and you're able to explain it from that perspective and make it clear what your perspective is on what you're reading then you're going to be at least doctrinally sound as you're having discussions with other people about it, okay? So we're going to look at it from that way. So here what we're going to look at, this is going to be the context. And over here, we're going to put um, interpretation, uh, never violate doctrines. Okay, so it's doctrines, isn't that far the far side? And we will move this uh, video around as we are going to fill things in. For right now, we're going to hang over here on context. We're going to set the context first. That's the most important things. Before you even begin to know what doctrines you might be dealing with, you always need to set the context, right? Now, on the whole, we did set the context for the book of Revelation early on in our work, correct? um but now that we're into the letter the these letters to the churches there's also a context for each church yeah. did you notice how many of you were wondering why do i have to keep doing so much research on every single church do you have an answer for that in your mind why we keep saying go do the research find out who they are what was going on what was their situation and their issues in particular
1: Are all located in different places and are in different stages of their belief system
0: or or the church growth. Right, right. The message to each of the churches was specific and it's varied slightly, right? And therefore, what we have seen so far, when Jesus is describing himself to each church and he addresses each one, he picks out of those qualities that were all all laid out in chapter one, he picks out the ones that pertain to specifically to the issue of each of the churches. Now, when we hit um, the church of, um, let's pull up, pull out your sheets because it'll be easier for you. Let's see if I can put my visuals on here, if I can see. Gosh, eyes. Okay. The first one we did was Ephesus and Jesus is portrayed how? That's right. Holding the star. Okay. So he, it's, he has, he's, he's the one who holds the seven stars in his hands and the one who does what? Walks, Walks among them. Now, what do those two qualities convey to you about who Jesus is to, as far as his, his message to this church? If he holds them in his hand and he walks among them.
1: He has
0: an intimate He's an intimate God. He's a God that's present and relational. Got it? So when he addressed the problem to that church of Ephesus, what, had, what was their problem at that point? They had left their first love. And what is love about? Relationship and intimacy, right? Are you starting to see that then? Okay. And in Smyrna... That was the, the second letter we looked at. So by, just by review, what do you remember from Smyrna about Jesus? How was he described? Wow, the first, the last, and the one who is, has come to life. What does it mean has come to life? He is resurrected, which tells you what about Jesus? It means that he lives and concerning death? That he's defeated it, that he has the power over death. What was the situation in Smyrna? Uh,
1: They were under tremendous suffering and persecution.
0: Okay. So the church was under persecution, and some of the examples we had were like um, Antipas, right, my faithful witness who died among you. And we looked historically at Polycarp. We also looked at the persecutions that have happened through the generations. One of them was the Smyrna, uh, 1921, right? So as we looked at those persecutions, what was the end result of those kinds of persons for those believers? For many of them, what happened to them? They died. They died. Okay. And because they died, Jesus's word to them as being the one who holds the power over life and he has the power of resurrection, that was the, the word of encouragement that they needed to have from him. There was no rebuke to that church, just that be faithful unto death right? If you must die, if you if you are called to death for my name's sake, understand I'm the one who is the resurrected Lord. I am the one who is the first and the last. I loved that. The first, the, who is, who was, who is to come. This totality of, of, of God as the one who is beginning to end, and, he's, and in, in the midst of, the, of their persecution, he stands with them, right? As we saw in the first uh, letter to Ephesus, also holds true into, to Smyrna, but that he is the first and the last, and that he is, was dead and has come to life. The next letter was Pergamum, and how was he described there? Yeah, he has a sharp two-edged sword, and um, what was the issue in Pergamum? they were double-minded. Okay, double-minded. And what what was their major issue? Yeah, they ha- they lived where who who dwelt? Where Satan dwelt. So there was the the preeminence of a battle that was going on for this particular uh, community, right? That they, there was spiritual warfare. What do you need when you go into warfare? A sword. So here Jesus is described to them as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And, and as a two-edged sword, he said to them, you're not to deny my name. You are to um, not deny my faith, but you're to be faithful even unto death. But I'm the one with the two-edged sword, and I'm the one who's going to really be your uh, your uh, protector, right? Your defender. And I will also come to your rescue in that picture of the one with the sword. Um, Those who hold the teaching of Balaam were uh, were another example of the place where Satan dwelt among them, right? And for them, it's almost a lot like what we see in Thyatira. That was, they were, because of Balaam's teaching, they were encouraged to go to do what kinds of things? Immoral acts. Yeah, immoral acts and... Eating things, sacrificed to idols. It's, would you say it's basically the same issue, result, whatever, of the problem that we're looking at now this week in Thyatira? So we've seen a precursor to So in other words, there is some consistent issues in each of these churches, but then there's also some things that are the opposite, right? All right, so now we're ready to to hit Thyatira. And in this one, we're going to be seeing Jesus. And he is described again in a way that is going to be specific to this church. Now, before we dive into that, what we have to do then is set our context so we understand the environment into which this is spoken. Does that make sense? And if you don't start there, you don't have a clear picture of what those two pillars are what is your context so you don't violate and what is your known doctrine so you don't violate those so let's talk about the um about the context of this letter first of all literary style let's talk about that what do we know about revelation on the whole as far as the literary style Okay, it's history and it's prophecy. And when you have prophecy, how is prophecy generally conveyed to you? In this book, mostly what do we see them as the prophecy is given? What, what kinds of things, how is it conveyed? Visions, through a vision, but what do they see? They saw a great red dragon. He had seven heads and ten horns. There you go. Or imagery, right? It's through imagery. So they're given, um, I think, especially in the Hebrew mind, if you keep in mind the fact that the Hebrew mind, on a consistent basis, one of the things that God does most often with them is to describe things for them with the, the analogy of something else, through the, like a tree, a rock, a sheep, right bread in this case through the book of revelations it's no different it's prophecy so prophecy is going to be history once it's fulfilled it's a it's a proclamation of coming history but it's given to them through what imagery right prophecy through imagery I'm just going to put a slash there, prophecy imagery, because that's how it's conveyed. Yes, it's through a vision or a dream. Sometimes it's through appearance of an angel that comes and speaks, right? But but what's often given is an image of it in some way that's going to convey the message. Do you see that to be true even in the letters at this point? When Jesus appears, how does he appear? In imagery, right? Each imagery as we just went through and, and kind of reviewed it, each imagery of him presents him in a distinctive way, and the, that imagery conveys a message that's factual, truthful, right? Later, we're gonna see even historically, they are fact, factual as well. All right, so literary style is history and prophecy. That's your context for the literary style of this book. The, the next thing to recall for right now is we have segment divisions, right? Uh, does anybody remember the verse, and can you find it for me that gives us the outline of the uh, segment divisions for this book? Say that again. what uh, what verse gives us the segment divisions for Revelation? I'll give you a hint. Start in chapter one. <laughs> Do you remember what he was told to write? Yes. Okay. Okay. So the things you have seen and what had he seen? He saw Jesus. And then the things that are the things that are happening right now. Now, what is happening right now when that writing was, was executed by John? What, what era do you call that? The church age. And then what's the next part of it? The things which will take place after these things, meaning and referring back to the church age, right? So what part are we in right now in chapter two and three? The things which are, exactly. Okay, the segment division that we're in right now is the second one, the things which are are you starting to kind of click about why that might be an important point to keep in mind as you're looking to try to interpret some of the things that are being said? He's writing to a, to a church a letter. For us right now in history, it's what, uh, 200 years ago? No, it's even more than that probably. 2,000 years ago, sorry. Yeah, I know, whoa, 200, 2,000 years ago. So if it's 2,000 years ago, where are we in that progression of the things which he saw, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things? Where are we in that time frame? The things which are. So we are still in this time frame right here, you guys, the things which are. So what does that tell you then? about the things that you're looking at that are messages to these churches. What does that tell us? We can apply. They apply to us. Every word that's written to the, each of these seven letters are applicable to us because we are the church. We're, we're numbered among those whom Jesus is addressing as he speaks and rebukes and encourages through these letters to the churches. So as you look at Pergamum, just specifically, or I mean Thyatira, this week in particular, what I want you to understand is these are the things which are, and those are the things which these apply to you and I right now today. He's speaking to us. Context, again, right? Context, rules for interpretation. As you look at what we're reading this morning, and what we've been reading through all these letters to the churches, these are things that apply to us because we are in that time called the things which are. Okay. All right. So that's our segment division. Now let's talk about historical um, Thyatira. Historical Thyatira. Okay. So now this part is on your shoulders. I want to hear from you all. What did you learn about Thyatira in your research time the last 3 weeks that you've had to work on this? Tell me the the most important things that you think le- you learned that really apply. Okay. It was a small it was actually one of the smaller of all the churches. It was the smaller of the, all the seven churches that letters were sent to, yes, okay, and be, and There you go. Okay, so it was a small village as compared to the larger cities of the other um, letters that were written. So we're just gonna do a contrast there. Uh, there were guilds. Now, explain to me what a guild is. It's a, its basically like a union, a trade union. What were some of the things that were tr- uh, things that they had unions for in Thyatira? Do you remember? Um, so they had coppersmiths and oh yeah, very interesting, copper. and or, what other kind of irons? Bronze. Yeah. There was bronze and iron and copper, all those things. And what were they making out of bronze and copper and iron? Well, possibly idols for one thing. Yeah, that's so true. Actually, that's going to take us right into one of those specific, um, God worships that they had there. But, um, who okay this village first of all why did they develop so many kinds of guilds because they had so many kinds of trades what made this a blue collar bustling little village what what happened to it that it became so filled with all these trades. I mean, if it's just a rinky, have you ever driven through some of our little tiny villages uh, between Austin and other places and you just zip right through? And what makes them bustle at some point? What causes them to come alive? Well, could be tourism. And in the case of Thyatira, yes. Okay, good point. There is a traveling through. Now, what did we know about the seven churches? How are they organized on the map? There's a circuit. What was that circuit for? What was its purpose? The Roman Empire. And what did the Roman Empire do on, those, on that circuit? They traveled through from one place to another. It's like a major highway. And the, the, the roads were cleared for, so that they could travel through easily without stumbling and going over rocks and into pits, right? On that circuit, what kinds of things occurred? What did they use that circuit for? Commerce and trade, so people traveled. They also was, by the way, a postal system route. It's how the Roman Empire got information from one place to another and from uh, from one leadership area to another leadership area. Last week we looked at uh, Pergamum, right? The letter to Pergamum, and per- what kind of a city was Pergamum? Do you remember? As far as in its in its kind of its position among those seven w- what position did it hold literary. It was very literary they they were they excelled in libra- in writings and libraries and so forth do you remember what we talked about the about emperor worship that church was given the first opportunity to actually uh, institute emperor worship they were chosen because of what kinds of things? What, were, what was? What else was going on there? Yeah. Oh yes, they had those great hospitals there. Yes. Oh, and the altar of Zeus, right? Right. Okay. Does anybody remember that it was also the center for judicial? Uh, uh, judgings. Do you remember that the emperor or the, uh, the governor of Pergamum was the first one who was given that power of, and I can't remember the word, but it was a, 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 a Latin term or a Greek term, I guess it was Greek. But it gave him the power over life and death. Remember? And, it, and it, he could, at any moment, make a declaration off with her head. And, the, the, and there was a sword that he would pull. And what would he do with that sword? Whoosh! Strike him down dead in the moment. He had the power and the right as the governor over that city. It was a judicial city that had power above all the other cities and all, and without, within the whole realm of Asia Minor. So, per, for so Pergamum was really really big. Now, when you let's backtrack and go back to that circuit that we know, where is Pergamum in relationship to Thyatira? It's on one side from the east, right? And what happens from the countries from the east? In order to get through to Thyatira, What or to Pergamon, what did they have to pass through? Thyatira. So what do you think Thyatira then uh, became? How, how did it become a bustling city of guilds? What happened? What did they bring in and situate around it so that when travelers were coming through, before they could even reach Pergamum. They had to hit what in Thyatira? Does, did anybody read on this? This is where they they made a military encampment. All around that little village were uh, Roman garrisons of of soldiers. Now it wasn't humongous, but they called it a speed bump on the way to Pergamum. It was it was a place that because of the the military surrounding that little village. That's number one. The reason that they're uh, their trades began to develop. They started doing the dyeing of purple and the making of military armament with silver and bronze and iron. It's why they began to cultivate all these other kinds of things, because there was a need for them, because they were making supplies for these military men who were camped around them. It'd be like going out to uh, Camp Mayberry, right? And Camp Mayberry, it, it's a, a speed bump in the road to somewhere else. Well, it's a pretty poor example of it, I guess, but. In many ways, Thyatira became this um, somewhat of a protection then to anyone who would go into Pergamum. You know why? They loved Pergamum. Pergamum was revered. It was considered powerful, and um, you know it held the seat for this great authority and for emperor worship. And it was big and it was beautiful and it had as we said, libraries, and it had uh, the healing places. It it, It had everything. And then there was this little tiny Thyatira. That's who we're talking about right now. So it was a small village. And yes, it became renowned for guilds. But how did those guilds come into being? Because they camped military garrisons around the outer edges of that city. That city then, by necessity, needed to develop all these trades. Does that make sense now? It's kind of like going through the valley to get to That's exactly There's right. All
2: this retail
0: lined up along Yes. The, uh, yes. The yes. And
2: all the military.
0: Right. You know, exactly. It's, but it makes per, it makes perfect sense once you do your context set, setting. When you go back and research and you realize what was going on in that city, what caused them to have all these guilds? Because it was the military because the military was there and camping around them there was a need for wool and for food and for weapons and for um uh clothing yes and purple dye guess who they provided their purple dye for rome and thyatira which was considered a providential you know a a kind of a royalty kind of a city where the purple would have been worn would would be worn by who who wore purple in those days, the wealthy. the wealthy, even like this dark blue, like I have on today, this would have been considered highly coveted because it's a, it's a higher value and it costs a lot more money to make. So these were the kinds of things that Thyatira was all about. So it was, they were guilds. They, they were, um, they were a garrison, a garrison sit, um, uh, I'll call it a city, but it's a very small, you almost really want to call it a village. Um, Military outpost, right, camped on the road. It was also on that mail route, so it kind of accomplished several things. Even though it was very small, it had great impact, would you you not say, in the community? Because what do you think happens to the military? Do they always stay stationary in one place forever and ever? No. That's not the military I lived through for 20 years. (laughs) Every two or three years, you moved. If you were lucky, you were there four, depending on the jobs, of course. I mean, some jobs, people ended up being longer. But in my experience, we had 19 moves in our 25 years in the military. (laughs) So some years, I moved two or even three times from house to house to house. So that's the military. It's transient. And therefore, guess what happens with the the experience and the exposure that those military men have within that little tiny village, what happens to that experience? When they PCS out, when they militarily are moved, what happens? They take that information and those experiences with them out into the world as well. So you can see that even though it's a small village, it can have quite an impact in the world, so, so to speak, especially that Roman... Um, system and certainly within that mail circuit because the information would travel and people would hear right okay um so it's a blue collar workers copper leather dyes pottery every one of the trade guilds they were guilds and every guild had a god so if you were a coppersmith if you were a bronze worker, if you were a leather worker, and you wanted your business to thrive in that very small village, what was required? Did you did you guys read on that at all? They would
2: have to sacrifice a pinch of incense to whatever the guild's god was in order to be a member of the guild. Okay. There was a certain amount of protection in the guild. In other words. You do, if you're in the field, people do business with Right. Not in
0: the field, uh-huh. How many of you guys have had experience in the workplace with uh, unions, work, workers' unions? Okay. In, depending upon the career field that you're in, is it often not necessarily forced upon you, but advantageous for you to be a member of that guild? And if you're not a member of that union, what happens to you personally? You don't prosper, you don't get promoted, you don't get used, you don't get invited to the important events, right? Without that connection within that guild, what happens to your livelihood? It goes goes down, 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 right? You, You would be scratching out a living rather than being prosperous in it. That is the point to what you're looking at in the historical context over here, because if you're going to be a member of a guild, you're, you are also going to be, I feel, affixed to some kind of a God worship system for the, that represent that particular guild. In that day, there was a God for each of these different things. Um, what about the God worship in Thyatira on the whole? What came to be a dominant? You know, We saw Zeus come up in the last one at Thyatira. And the seed of called the seed of Satan, right? Was also emperor worship, is what we kind of came to see. Who who was the dominant god in um, Thyatira? Apollo. Very good. Nice work. Okay, so we have Apollo. Now it doesn't mean he was the only god because each guild had a god, right? But Apollo was kind of a big one. Does anybody know what his name was, Apollo? What he was called? the son of God. What God? Who is his father? Zeus. Isn't that interesting? Apollo called the son of God, I'm going to put a little g, meaning Zeus. That was his father. So in this particular small village Apollo was one of the major ones now we know this for one reason because of archaeological dig finds there are tons and tons I found lots of coins and imagery of him all over the place let's see if I can find some of them really quick here because they were like everywhere and when you if you google Apollo and coin, oh thank you (laughs) <laughs> I know, was there. Right. Here's one right here. So there, there's little pictures that I, I googled and cut and pasted right off my, my online research. But these coins are like everywhere. Temp- one more significant historical insight is that the city of Thyatira boasted a special temple to Apollo, the sun, also called the sun god or the son of God. His father was Zeus. It explains why the Lord introduced himself then as what? The son of God. Does that not absolutely blow your mind? I mean, it's not the only reason he's called that because there's other implications in the symbolism of that title, the son of God. We're going to talk about that as we look at those, those pictures, those imageries that are given to us. But understanding that that, that the counter to uh, Apollo is a significant point for you to understand. And when you do your research to set context for this particular letter, you come to see that Apollo was referred to and called the Son of God. Um, oh, golly, it was really, did, what else did you learn about the, worship sy- the false worship system in there? Because I mean, there was bunches of them, right? Did you read any information specifically that you'd like to share about that? No? Oh, you guys, listen, you yes, had three weeks. There was a, um, there was a bunch of uh, gods. Uh, one, they said there was
2: a special temple at I dedicated
0: to this um this god named Samithi. And there was a prophetess at the shrine that uttered sayings and stuff. There you go. So the, Delphic, right? the Delphic, right? So uh, she was like, a, she was like a, a, a prognosticator, so to speak, Right. Okay. Yes. And that's interesting because Zeus was also referred to as the God of prophecy as well. So there was other gods that, that held that particular quality as well. But Zeus also, he, he laid claim to being a God of prophet, the God of the prophets and prophecy of wisdom, of wise words. Interesting, right? Um, he was also the god of archery. So every time you see him almost, he's standing with a bow, right? The archer. Um, and the one that I managed to find online uh, the, at the end of all this was him standing with his bow, but he also had this great big shield. And what do you think that shield is made of? Bronze. Why bronze? What does bronze do for the warrior? It protects him. Why? How, what do you know? What what is the the biggest quality about bronze? Strength. So it's a it's strength to uh, protect, but strength to save. Isn't that interesting? Strength. It saves the warrior his life because it, of the strength of that metal. That's that's. So the imagery and all of this these things that are taught. When Jesus then is portrayed as one who has uh, feet of what? Burnished bronze. Amazing. And so what is he speaking of about his feet and about his eyes? We're going to talk about that in a minute. So that's one of the things also Apollo is noted for, that he's the, this god of, the, of um, the bronze and archery. Dance, poetry, leader of the muses. Isn't that interesting? Um, he's a complex deity who turns up in art and literature possibly as often as Zeus himself. As a sun god, he was called Phoebus or bright. Among many debated understandings to the name Apollo, it suggests that it means purifier. Uh, It was uh, the understanding by this community, the next two attributes that Jesus pronounces are perfectly fitting. Because of the way Apollos is understood by the people of Thyatira, That alone is one of the reasons for all of the depictions of Christ would be to counter this God that they revered so much, who was Apollo. Isn't that interesting?
2: You're calling Apollo
0: sun god. Yeah, there's both. There's both. Sun as in the sun, but also he is a son of a god, which is Zeus.
2: Yeah that's yeah, Greek that's Greek another
0: Greek yes, Greek. yes, yes, exactly. But I think it all kind of goes back to him being called the Son of God and then they translated that into the sun God. and you know and the, the interesting thing about any of the Greek it also the Egyptians did the same thing and all these g- false God worship systems kind of uh, morphed as time and history went and they morphed them to suit their needs in historical time and place. You know, where the very interesting thing to us about God, what do we know about God? Our God is what? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The unchangeable God. But their gods are are morphed, and the names are morphed often. Diana, and I can't remember what her other name was off the top of my head, but every time I went. Artemis, that's it, right, Artemis. Every time we were driving down to Ephesus with the family or for visitors or whatever, we passed her temple. And that there was one pillar still standing at the very top of that, there was a stork's nest that sat there We and we always kind of giggled about the fact that, I mean, look what's left, you know. She's definitely not the same yesterday, today, and forever, right, <laughs> as our God is. <laughs> All right, okay, so that's kind of some history on Thyatira. Uh, geographically, it held a valuable place in that along that route, protecting um, Pergamum from the travelers from the east. They must first go through the garrison city of a Roman military encampment. And if there were any kind of troops or armies coming through to do harm, there would they would have warning and heads up. They could send runners ahead to Thyatira, and the garrison that was st- stationed there at this little tiny village would do the protecting to the measure that they were capable of. But it would be, as they called it in the in the text, a speed bump is all it would really be. It was not a massive army, but it was a big enough army that it it encouraged them to end up needing all these various kinds of trades and the they needed these trades, then the guilds became a part of it, and the guilds then constituted uh, god worship, a various, a variety, a wide variety of god worship. And it was necessary for them to be a member of a guild if they wanted to thrive. So there was financial connection to their work, and that financial connection then uh, stemmed back to I- idolatry, basically. Okay, So there was all these Poles and t- can, you, can you imagine living in that city as a Christian in that day? How hard it would be to make a living and stand on what's true and not worship in a way that you're not allowed to. And we, we looked at a couple of places. I think Corinthians is one of them. But there were, there were also uh, indications that through the book of Acts and others where the early apostles wrote to these places and said, listen, just hold fast, but don't eat things sacrificed to idols, right? And don't commit acts of adultery to God, meaning, okay? So in the case of this church, that would be tough for them to do, would it not? You would have to be very, very disciplined, very, very committed to it. And what must you be willing then to do also? If you're not going to be a part of the guild, Because of the idolatry, you're going to have to pay a financial price for it. You're going to have to be willing to earn less, make less, in order to stand on your doctrine, uh, truth to God. Very interesting city at this point. Are you beginning to see the problems and the obstacles that they face? would you say that we really in america have ever really faced anything like what was going on in thyatira at that time not to not to a great degree but yes but is it coming are you beginning to see already uh, lists being made and if your name's not on the list do you remember back back in the, uh, several generations ago there was there was blackballing blacklists that were written of people that they thought were associated with the Communist Party, they got on that list and nobody would hire them, right? Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. So that was kind of a precursor. But where we're at now, there's also been some recent um, hindrances. That's If you're a Christian and you're trying to get... Uh, w- what is that permit for uh, uh, not paying the, ta- the high taxes... The nonprofit, to be a nonprofit and to get the, remember what the IRS was doing? Well, thankfully that. Just- and that got stopped, yeah. but it was, it was a little, te- it was a precursor. It was a sign, a warning to us and we're seeing it coming. Mm-hmm. And now we've had the issue with the pandemic and now what's happening? They're going to, the yes, they're knocking on your door and they're going to take names and write, and keep a list of who has and who hasn't concerning the the vaccine taking the vaccine so these are the what i'm okay so what i'm saying is none of these are specific right yet to your christian faith but they are infringements on your free will to make your own personal choices and what they're doing is they're they're warming you up they're they're paving the way so that at some point now they're going to come to a place where you are going to be made to make a choice of who, who your allegiance will be to. It's closer than we
2: think. Okay. In yesterday's news, Nick Buttigieg? Buttigieg? About the arms. Oh, the the arms, okay. The great uh, yeah, I don't know him. Wow, And there's a whole, there's a whole long article about it, about how banks are developing a social credit
0: system Mm -hmm. that, just Mm -hmm. like China has, that if you don't toe the line on, uh, on... Your political views and your religious affiliations. Okay, so that is exactly what was going on here in Thyatira. This is Thyatira to the to the end. Now, we're just beginning to see these things start to happen, guys. But as the days approach closer and closer to the days when Jesus returns, we are going to see this more and more. I pray that the church is raptured out and we won't have to really endure a lot of the hardships. So, you know, I think God's word is pretty clear that he talks about a day that he will rescue us and he won't allow us to be tempted beyond that which we are able, right? Um, But I do think the church on the whole has become very, very soft. We don't want to be impositioned financially or any other way. And so often what we are finding is many so-called Christians anyway are willing to go and compromise, right, in the things that they believe in order to have the financial support, even just to have enough likes on Facebook. Right? I mean, it's really sad. So these are current events, I think, that we can kind of begin to relate to what was going on in Thyatira. The little tiny bit, when, you, when you're listening to those kinds of reports, how does that make you feel? Angry? What else? A uh, little frightened. Frightened? Yeah, because our whole world is changing and suddenly we may be on the outside if we are not on those proper lists and get been given a stamp of approval, which means what must you do when it comes to things like Facebook or Twitter or whatever else you're on? What happens to your free spe- speech? Yeah, it's gone. That's right, it's gone. If in fact you speak up, what happened to this man when he gave a speech and told the things that he was doing? Boom, lost his line of credit from his banker, okay? So this is where we have to just understand, this is where the church will head. It's getting, it's going to get more and more difficult as the days approach. We're going to see more and more persecution against specifically Christians or anyone with conservative values, okay? So now, you know, I don't know, You know whether you want to go so far as to say, you know, the Republican Party, but I would say the Christian Party. (laughs) Those who are Christians and hold to their faith and won't waver, they are the ones who are going to, at some point, have to go through the fire of of decision making, right? Of how they're going to live their life and what they're going to stand on. Okay, so that's our background. That's our context for this setup today. Now. When you were looking at the at your homework on the whole, then you, on day one and day two, you were to go through and do your basic observations, correct? Mm-hmm. Hold on. Let me find my little observation list here. I've got one. It's right here. You looked at marking of keywords just for this particular letter, right? So it's verses 18 to the end of chapter two. Was that verse 22 or 24? I, I, where'd that it? 18 to
2: 29.
0: Okay. I'm looking for my, oh, here it is right here. I have to pull out my observation worksheet so I can flip around here. Okay. Yes, So it's 22 to 29 or uh, 18 to 29 rather is your letter. Okay. What were your key words? What kind of key words did you come up with? You looked at the word repent and deeds. Okay. Now, when you're considering the the subject of repentance and the, uh, the subject of deeds, and in regards to deeds, what is the response of God in this? What does he say about deeds? Yeah, he says specifically, he's going to be the one that searches the minds and the hearts, and he's going to do what? Give to each one of you according to your deeds. So that's in verse 23. So what doctrines then, even at this point, we've barely even touched on these key words, but what doctrines are you seeing already? Is there a doctrine concerning repentance? Well
2: repentance is uh the Greek word metanoia. Okay. Um it is also anointed, um, to, be, to march in one and turn
0: Yeah, yeah, to make a complete turnabout, right? Okay, so to repent, um, I was going to do that part later. Hold on to that thought, though, about that's okay. No, that's fine. What I really just want to do is because we want to talk about our two pillars, our pillar over here was the context of this letter, which is Thyatira, the city, who they are what the letter was, was about, which we say it's history and prophecy, but it's prophecy through imagery, which explains why Jesus is described in these various ways with eyes that are, are like fire, feet like burnished bronze. That he is his title, the Son of God. These are all symbolic imageries to us, right? That's the context of this book, that's who he's described as. And then there was historical Thyatira, which we did a really good job, I think, of, of expounding on. Now we want to look at the the other pillar that we need to hold fast, these two things are what help us interpret everything else that we look at, right? So we want to talk about what kind of what kind of doctrines can you see just by looking at your list of key words. Is there a doctrine concerning repentance? Let me help you out. The answer is yes. <laughs> uh, what else are there doctrines for in the words that we looked at, at the keywords that you pulled out? About your deeds, yeah. (laughs) One of those. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Okay, the doctrine of. uh, Oh, let's see here. There was another key uh, subject that came up. That was the rebuke for this church. What was the first rebuke that they were given? tolerance. The idea of them tolerating. Now, what is the contrast to that? If they don't tolerate, what what would they be doing? What is the contrast to that? So speak it up. Yeah, okay. To, to give a rebuke or to, and in this case, when Jesus concludes this letter to them, it says, and to overcomers, I'm going to give you what? Authority to do what? Rule. To rule. And he says, then he goes on to say about himself, what? Concerning authority. He received authority from God and in the in like manner, what is he going to do for you and I? He's going to give us the morning star. Now we're going to talk about that, not today because we're going to do those overcomer things all, all at one time at the end. But the implication then is if what he says to you is if you overcome, I'm going to give you authority and I'm going to give you rulership, right? And then he says, and just as my father gave me authority, I'm going to give to you the morning star. What do you think that morning star then must be about? What subject matter? Ruling Ruling. has to be about authority and ruling, right? So if you're talking about in this case, when we looked at key words, we looked at the key word of tolerance The contrast to that is to rule and to exercise authority, right? Am I correct? Okay. I hope that you saw that and marked that on your observation worksheet because that would be the contrast of what they were doing wrong. They were reviewed because they were being tolerant of a specific situation that was going on in their church. And the result of that tolerance was, was was causing what to happen? immorality and worshiping of idols right so it was an infidelity to god and an infidelity to to a sanctified life these people were not keeping themselves in the manner that they should and they were falling into apparently these guilds where they would go and and give these uh uh, sacrifices and then they would eat that meat and in doing that, we, we looked at a verse in Corinthians that says, well, what, do you, what happens when you uh, eat of the meat of an of a animal that had been sacrificed to a god? What are you participating in? The, yeah, the worship and the fellowship. Do you remember what the Lord's Supper is about? Well, we did our study on covenant. What happens when they would eat and drink after making a covenant? What was the symbolic picture? They're sharing in that, in that with God. So if they're making a covenant before God and as they eat and as they drink, which is what we do when we take the Lord's Supper, we are, we are sharing in our God who is Christ, right? We are participating in and being in agreement and two becoming one. So what happens when in Thyatira, they would go to their guild meetings, they would offer a sacrifice of meat, and then they would do what with it? They would eat it. And in doing that, they became partakers, the scripture says, with demons. Interesting. Partakers with demons. So in in the same way that we become a partaker with Christ, as we take the Lord's Supper, they became partakers of their demons or their false gods as they ate of the meat that had been sacrificed to to these other idols. Symbolically, it was a very understood, very well-known picture right? In that day, people understood that if you ate a meal with them, that that was a fellowshipping of one another. It was almost a, a union. It's also why in the Middle East, they still to this day, if you are invited to have a meal with a family, that is quite profound and significant event. Okay. It's, it's like a picture of covenant, even to this day. Okay. So we have these subjects in repentance, deeds, tolerance, rule, and authority. And there was another key word that, come, that comes up, and I didn't mark it even on my list. I forgot to. Um, when you're looking at um, the judgment that God speaks of that he's going to execute, he says to her to the, about this prophetess, who is, she te- who is she teaching and leading astray? Servant. My bond servants, and then what does he he say later about about those that follow her? What does he call them in verse twenty three? Her children. So there's a contrast between God's bond servants and Jezebel's children. Did you catch that? God's bond servants versus Jezebel children. Okay, so that, that was another contrast that goes there. Now, if you look at that and analyze it, what would be the doctrine then that you might be looking at that you'd have to determine concerning how you interpret the things that are being said and to whom? What would be the doctrine about who are God's bondservants? Those who are what? believers that are saved, right? And if it's Jezebel's children, and he's talking about sending them basically to death, right? Therefore, what does that mean about them? Unbelievers, Unbelievers probably, if, if it's a true contrast, right? So the subject of what comes up? Salvation. salvation. There you go. Bondservants come, the subject of Salvation and in salvation just by the way in acts or no in Romans chapter 5 there's a doctrine that's taught there called federal headship and in federal headship you are in that one let me just put it up here Romans 5 federal headship is taught and it says over here you're either in Adam right or you are where in Christ, right? That's what federal headship teaches you. And so what we have to determine then as we're making evaluations about what, about what's being said concerning God's bondservants and Jezebel's children is you have to analyze in your mind the doctrinal s- subject of salvation and understand what you know is true about salvation. What do we know ab- about salvation just in general? We, we don't have time to do a teaching on it but i just want to know in general what do you know about is true about salvation if you are saved what pardon so
2: you're saved once
0: yeah you're saved once for all okay so that means what cannot happen to your salvation if you have true salvation okay. you cannot lose it cuz that's what covenant teaches us when you study that subject on the whole, the end result is, if in fact God has sealed you with his spirit, you are sealed until the day of redemption. You cannot lose your salvation, right? No matter what you do. Therefore, when we're looking and observing at what's going on in Thyatira, and we see that some of the children of this church, some of the people of this church are falling by the wayside and they're getting into things like sexual immoralities Right? Which pertain to, again, the guilds. Um, and it pertains to um, fidelity to, to God, to the one true God, right? So we have to understand whether we're talking about, if you're in Adam, it means you're, you are a sinner. You're unredeemed, as yet, at least at this point, you're unredeemed and you're guilty, right? There's going to be judgment. It's all about judgment. You're already judged. You're already condemned. You're already children of the darkness. That's where you start. That's what federal headship teaches, is that every person, every human being born, we are born in Adam. In order to come into salvation so that you're in Christ, there has to be a federal headship move. That move is executed through covenant. And when God places his spirit in you, you are now federally moved from being in Adam to now being in Christ. You are now redeemed. You are saved, right? Um, And you are, you are, what is the word? um, Justified. Thank you. There's, there's other words for it too, but yes. So that'll work. And so that's what you have to consider when you're looking at doctrines. And this is why when we teach precept, we say to you, there are two pillars that you have to handle, get handled when you are going to make observations in God's word. You have to understand what your historical context is, what's the context of what you're reading is saying, right? Who is it to? Why was it written? What was its purpose, right? What was their point? So by knowing all this background, you begin to get the picture on what's going on there and why a letter would have been written to them in the way that it is. And then on the other side, you have to say, now don't violate your known doctrines when you try to come up with interpretations about what you're looking at. Number one, Christians cannot lose their salvation. So if it's not if the if when God is speaking to this church about judgment and is talking to someone who is actually a believer, what kind of judgment is it? Is it judgment or is it something else? What else what, what else would you call it? Correction or discipline? Does the scripture talk over and over and over about God and that he disciplines his children? Is that is that am I correct on that? Yeah. Right. But does it ever, do do you ever see anywhere in scripture where God condemns a believer to hell? Not one time do you see that in scripture because that would violate your known doctrines. Isn't that awesome to kind of, so once you lay those points out, then you can go back in and start looking at all these details and you're going to get accurate understanding. You, your mind can bounce back and forth and say, well, if he's talking to this kind of a person, then it means this. If he's talking to this person, if he's speaking to an unredeemed, he's speaking about this kind of judgment. If he's speaking about a redeemed believer, he's speaking about discipline and they're very distinct. So discipline Versus judgment, judged or, I'm going to put judgment. Because judgment was also another subject then that came up because it talked about repent or he's going to judge, right? And he was rebuking them because what were they not doing? They were not repenting and they were not doing what within the church so they didn't even have to get to that point of, they weren't correcting and rebuking, they weren't exercising the authority that God has given to the church to be watchers over the church. I love that Ezekiel chapter 3 where he says, I'm making you a watchman over the house of Israel, right? And you tell them whether they want to hear or not. If you tell them, their, their blood is upon their own head. But if you don't tell them, who's responsible? I am. I am responsible to make judgment within the household of faith to keep purity within the the church. Because if you don't judge sin, what happens to it? Do you remember the story about the leaven? Yes, it it spreads to the whole loaf. So the whole lump becomes uh, leavened because you did not keep the leaven out. And leaven represents sin. So there's our context there's our doctrines. Now we're ready to just talk about what you learned in the book for fun. All the fun stuff comes now. And most of it is pretty straightforward. I won't get all the points written down because it's a lot to cover. But let's talk about, first of all, um, concerning Jesus, these symbolisms about Jesus that are given to us, the imagery right? And the first one is that he is called the son of God. Now, when you looked at that, what are the qualities there that matter concerning how he's addressing this particular church? What did you learn about that title, the son of God? There you go. Good job. One time, it's used one time in the book of Revelation. When, how is he called in all the other references? Do you do you what is his other type? He's not son of God. He's called son of man. And as son of man, what is that imagery about? What is why his humanity, his intimacy with us, his understanding of our frailty and our sin and our so he's he's one who's who's forgiving. He's one who's understanding. He's compassionate. He's merciful. Right? Okay. That's son of man but this time he's referred to as son of god what happened in that transition full authority authority. does that fit the context of this book has authority come up oh my goodness authority that's another doctrine that came up son of god it shows him as authority And when he comes as son of God and that authority, what are the pictures of him in just this immediate context? How is he depicted? He has what? Eyes like a flame of fire. Eyes like a flame of fire. Okay, there's a couple of points that we can, uh, that we can um, expound on that. First, let's just talk about the eyes. When you speak about the Son of God who has eyes, what do we learn about in this? Yes. Yes. That, heart, so definitely... Excellent. That's exactly what I was trying to get at. The fact that his eyes are brought out as a dominant. Uh, pictorial imagery for us. He is the son of God. And what is God then in one of his characteristics of qualities? He's the all-seeing and the all-knowing God, right? So the eyes of one that is all-seeing and all-knowing. So eyes, eyes, all-seeing, all-knowing, Give me a couple of those verses in chapter two that t- talk about that, where he know, he examines the hearts and the minds. And 23. so in, in 23, any others? Is I know your deeds. There you go. And I know your deeds. All knowing, I know your deeds and I see, I examine the heart. Those are the two points that are brought out in this letter. And in that pictorial imagery of his eyes, you get that message isn't that a, isn't that awesome to be able to see that okay and then the flame of fire what is that about what does fire do it's, it's consuming it it can find too that's a really good point so the contrast there is it can either be a refiner or it can be a consumer right it also causes maybe illumination but i don't know that illumination is the, because illumination, to me, goes to the concept of, of knowledge and understanding. Is, do you think that's what this is talking about? Yeah. No eyes like fire. The eyes who examines. He says first of all, he gives them an exhortation. Does he not? I see your deeds. What does he say about their deeds? Okay. Yeah. So they're actually improving in many ways and he talks about their about one of their qualities in verse 19. Love their love and faith. Now, how does that contrast with one of our other churches? Ephesus. Ephes- yeah. Ephesus was doing the deeds but they had no love. This church had love, but what were they not really doing? Oh they were loving too much that they were compromising <laughs> and allowing and being tolerant yes so again what it shows you then is there's a balance is there not society they today, today they use
2: the
0: word love to be right right exactly or they use i love that verse what people love to throw in your face judge not lest you be judged oh, yeah right? Totally out of context. What is that speaking of? It's, it's speaking of the fact that we are, we are not we to... Judge others. We can't judge others if we haven't judged ourselves right. first. It's a totally different subject matter. But does that say we shouldn't judge ourselves? What does God say about where judgment begins? At the household of God. And in this particular letter, what is he showing us about judge, not being judged? Judging? What, what kind of rebuke is he giving them? Yeah, you have tolerated this. Look at what has happened to my children, my bond servants. And because you did not do your job of exercising authority, what has resulted? Many of them have begun to commit acts of adultery with her, right? And, you know, we could talk about, well, are the ones that are doing that, are they believers? Are they not believers? Well, we don't know. It doesn't doesn't go there. The point is, the rebuke is what? you tolerated her. And because of that, sin infiltrated into the church. You must call out and keep reined in overt acts of sins, which will cause my children to stumble. What is it that God says to you and I, when we come into relationship with him, what are we supposed to do in our lives? Clean up. Why? Because cleaning up makes you saved? No. No. And
1: so. Your of sin, right.
0: You just fell right into the Book of James, didn't you? There, you, you know, you've got to fall. Yes. Here's the here's the deal. There are three verb tenses for salvation, justification. Thank you. That's when you get saved sanctification, that's cleaning up your life because you are justified. And then the future will be your glorification. So those three verb tenses concerning salvation are addressed throughout all of scripture. You have to know all three of those verb tenses concerning salvation. Here it is, salvation. And you can say three verb tenses. And you have to apply the correct one. You have to know the distinction. Between when he says, be holy for I am holy. Well, aren't I already holy, Lord? Didn't you sanctify me? Didn't you save me? Didn't you wash me clean? Well, what does 1 John say? That The believer must do what? Confess your sins, right? So, okay, wait a minute. So I have to confess my sins, but I'm already forgiven for my sins. That doesn't make sense. What's the problem with my understanding? My doctrines are not clear. I have not understood when God switches from justification conversation to sanctification. So in this book, that's one of the things that you can look at is to understand that sometimes when God says, you are not to do that, you are to walk holy before me, you are to be basically a representative of me in this world. And that is not because that's what saves you. You are saved and therefore you are to do these things. Okay, so flame of fire, fire judges, it uh, consumes, or it purifies, right? So that's, and then the next thing was his feet are like burnished bronze. Does anybody know what that burnished bronze means? Okay, burnished though. what does burnished mean? It's been polished up. It's shiny, it's bright. Do you remember when the, the Apollo's, when he talks about him uh, with the Sun issue, it's talking about his radiance and how bright he is and what he it's one of the qualities that Apollo's is. God is saying no. I'm the one who's, just my feet are like burnished bronze. It's this contrast to this other false God worship that was going on in Thyatira. It was the implication that Jesus outshines him. And he also outranks him because he's not the son of a God. He is the son of God. And in the case of Yahweh, he is who? Who do we know Yahweh to be? The... He is the I am, right? Which is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Thanks to Christian, we know that, right? <laughs> the I am statement is in that, is in that definition. I, the one who is and who was and who is to come. The first two is a clause that's a unified statement about uh, the self-existing God, the I am. That's the I am statement. Okay. And the other part of it, who is to come, who's coming? Jesus is, Christ is. And so, this, this, actually, the statement, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, shows the unity work of the triune God that we worship. Isn't that, that is very exciting to me. Okay. All right. So, Feet Like Burnished Bronze is talking about, and burnished bronze, uh, the depiction there is, it symbolically represents, Well, really two things. Did you guys figure out what those were? What else is built of bronze in the scripture? Right. Very good. There was that. Okay. I'm sorry, say it again. Yeah, well, yes, there's the, yes, there's there's actually a lot of articles within the temple itself that are made of bronze. But do you know what the major one was? The brazen altar, or it's also called the bronze altar. Interesting, isn't it? Why, and what happened at the bronze altar, which was one of the most important pieces in the tabernacle? Sacrifice for what? Sin, and how was that sacrifice consumed? by fire. Isn't that interesting? So it's really a, a pictorial of both of these things. Eyes like a f- flame of fire and feet of burnished bronze. The You can put on here the uh, bronze altar. In the tabernacle. Gold and lots of gold also. Kingship right purity refining bronze and because what so what did it re- represent if it if at the altar they sacrificed an animal for what for their sin so it represented what judgment and righteousness what happened is their sin was Sin was judged, and the, the result was forgiveness of sin or the covering of sin. It was righteousness imputed, right? So we have judgment. And so again, up here, the eyes also are the all seeing, all knowing, making judgments, right? Consuming and purifying. Symbolically, down here, again, the, the feet like British bronze, it's almost identical. It's judgment and righteousness. Uh, do you remember what about the bronze snake? Did anybody do any work on that? Because that bronze thing was super important in this picture. What is? What do you remember about the bronze in the Old Testament and the bronze snake that Moses? That's right. So there, there were there was rebelliousness going on in the camp of Israel when they were in the wilderness. Right? Okay. What do you can you tell us the rest of the story?
2: what I remember here, uh, yes, there was rebellion, and
0: a number of people died. And b- what bit them?
2: Vipers. Uh, Vipers,
0: snakes. So what was cre- created?
2: Uh, a bronze? A bronze snake that was put on a pole. Yes. And God told Moses to tell the people.
0: Look at the snake and you will be healed. Yeah, look at the bronze snake. Yes. Because for Israel, what did they understand bronze to represent? Uh, purity and
2: um at, goodness of
0: sin. Yeah, right. And that it would so if they looked at him, what was the why looking at it? Why did it require that they must look at it? To look at it
2: was a uh, obey, faith. It was, it was actually... It was faith, it was, an, it was uh, after faith. There
0: you go. And also, that is one of the most beautiful uh, foreshadowings of Jesus. Yes, yes, there you go. So in Numbers uh, chapter 21, you can read all about that bronze snake. And again. Is that
1: the
0: same symbol in the middle of Yes, it is. Yes, it is. This is in Numbers 21. I'll just give you verse 9 to start you with. The brazen altar is in Leviticus um, 6.13. You can look at that there. I mean, there's a lot of places. I only gave you two references, but like it's all over in the scripture. There's also a New Testament reference where, I think it's in Mark, where Jesus says, and so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, Mm -hmm. right? So he He uses the imagery of this bronze snake, which was an Old Testament picture for them. And he says, I too shall be lifted up. And if you look to me, there'll be salvation. Isn't that beautiful? So again, the son of God uh, as authority, basically as God, deity, as savior, And when he comes, he comes for what? Judgment. The second time of his coming, his his second coming. His first coming, what was he called? Son of man. His second coming, he's coming as son of God. The first coming was for what? Salvation. His second coming is for judgment. Isn't that amazing? So now, can you see how all this imagery fit, fits so beautifully with what was going on in Thyatira, what they were up against, and what he was challenging this church concerning their sin? Their sin was they weren't making judgment. The whole book of Leviticus lays out the, the practice that Israel was taught to discern the clean from the unclean, right? And they were told on a daily basis to discern different things. It was all about teaching them to pay attention to what is right and what is wrong. And so God gave them a long list of rights and wrongs so that they would practice habitually on a daily basis, the practice of doing it God's way, not their way, right? One of the most important things in the book of Leviticus was that blood was not to be touched or eaten. And if they even came into contact, what, what had did they have to do? Purify. Why? What was blood used for? It was for only one place, the altar. It was for the brazen altar, and it was for sin. And they, God says, this is a high, holy article, blood, symbolically. It's a picture. And it's a picture of salvation for you. And do not alter, do not tamper with, do not take it lightly, do not... Do not mistreat it, do not handle it, do not touch it, do not eat it, do do nothing with it. One thing only, blood is for sacrifice of sin. And so he taught Israel through that practice of all these laws that seem mindless to you and I. He was teaching them the principle of exercising their own personal authority, personal responsibility of choosing between right and wrong, the holy from the unholy, the clean from the unclean. Isn't that amazing? So this is what we see in this symbolic picture here. Authority was to be exercised by this church. And what was their sin? Their rebuke? Yeah. You tolerate. Now, I could just leave it just like that. Just you tolerate. But it goes on to explain who who and what they were tolerating. This woman, Jezebel, what was she doing? Okay, and look, read for me verse 20. Do you have your observation worksheet handy? Mm-hmm. Read verse 20.
2: But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman you Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leaves my bond servants astray so they commit acts of morality
0: and these things. Whoa. So there's your answer right there. What does it mean they're tolerating? They're tolerating this woman, Jezebel, who is uh, leading and teaching people in a wrong way. It isn't that the woman is teaching and it isn't that she's a prophetess, but God refers to her as a so-called prophetess and a false teacher. And that is what he has against her. He doesn't rebuke her for being a woman who's teaching. He doesn't rebuke her for the, the exercising of the gift of prophet. He rebukes her because she's acting in a dishonorable way in those two capacities. And this church did what about it? Nothing. Nothing. They tolerated it. They did not. So the contrast to that is what did they not do? They did not what? exercise authority what is the word to the overcomer at the end of this letter he who overcomes i will give what authority to do what to rule over the nations and what was the next sentence and rule the, and they will rule them with a rod of iron and what else is he and He said, just as i've been given authority from my father i'm going to give to you what the morning star So this is all about them not exercising authority when they should have, right? So so you tolerate, Um, it's contrasted with you did not uh, use authority to rule my people. right? That's my statement there. That's not in the text, but that is the contrast that's going on in this particular verse in verse 20. She teaches them to do all these different things. Now, the next rebuke actually doesn't come until verse 22. There's all this information about, about Jezebel, correct? But the real issue is seen in verse 22. What is it that is their sin that God is, is rebuking here in 22? Yeah, they, those who commit adultery with her, they are going to be thrown into, a, into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. So you tolerate and some of you commit acts of adultery with her. And he, and his his rebuke is repent. Now we're ready to talk about that word study. Do you have that handy? Any still? Uh, uh, and you why does it say they repent of
2: her?
0: Okay. Because what is she teaching? What is it that? No, t- I know, but at this point they're participating as well. And they're re- participating in what? Adultery. And and it's called her. Her deeds, her deeds, her teaching, right? It's the things that she's teaching them to do. It's her. So if I were to teach you that everybody in this room had to be a quilter, because I'm a quilter, (laughs) and I think that quilting is the most important thing about your life, and so I'm getting you all on board with me, and we're skipping Bible study, but we're just going to all quilt, and I'm going to teach you how to quilt. Those would be my deeds, and I'm insisting that you do it. So you're participating in what? My deeds, which is... Quilting. In her case, it was false teaching, and her false teaching led them to do two major acts of sin. What were they? Immorality and idolatry. Right. So, immorality and idolatry were her were the two primary deeds that they, she was leading them into. Into her with her. I'm going to put on here her deeds. One, um, immoralities, and number two, idolatry or infidelity to Jesus. You could be another way you say it. I mean, you can say it however you want. Yes,
2: verse 23? I will kill her children. Is that literally her children or children of?
0: Okay, I think we're following the same thought here. If before it's saying her deeds, now it's her children. Who would her children be? Right. It's it could be the bond servants who've gone astray, or it says that well, yeah, you've leading my bond servants astray. Okay, yes. So my bond servants that are being led astray, which in the case of this a bond servant is is who? Is that a believer or an unbeliever? They're a believer. In this case, it's believers that are actually being led astray to do some of these things. Now, does that mean all the ones involved in doing these deeds are bond servants? No, No. because who else is always mixed into a church? Some non-believers. You can always guarantee there's a few in the the group that are non-believers. I would venture to say Jezebel may be one of them possibly although when he rebukes her he doesn't say anything to the effect that he is going to uh, kill her in, in a way which refers to eternal damnation right It really says to her I'm going to put her on a bed of sickness Now what do you what do you know about that bed of sickness anybody do word studies on that?
2: <laughs>
0: okay, but, do, but if you did a word study on the word bed of sickness, that term literally means a convalescing bed, a bed for someone who is sick. A, it's a smaller bed and it's a temporary bed. So it's something that he is going to do to, if, if, he's, if he's judging her in this manner where it's something that's temporary, it is a physical illness. Are there any examples in scripture where you remember that someone was put on a sick bed? Because they were disobedient to God. I know, I know, I know. I'm going to give you a visual. Moses. Yeah. Moses. Okay, what did, yes, Moses. What did Moses do that God put him on a sickbed?
2: Did not circumcise his son. There you go. And Zipporah did it and threw the foreskins at Moses' feet and told him that it was a bloody bridegroom.
0: That's right. He was a covenant of blood unto her. Because why? Moses had been commanded by God, had been chosen by God to take the children of Israel out of their captivity in, of Egypt into the promised land. And on the way to do that, after God gave him all this power, all this exaltation to leadership. And, you know, he considered himself unworthy. You saw, remember the whole story? I can't speak that well. I, I can't either. But guess what God did to me? He put me up here. But when God calls you and commissions you, right? I mean, this is kind of like the highlight of his life here at this point. Now he gets on the road and all of a sudden you see a little, a little passage in there about Moses being put on a bed of sickness. And it's because he had not circumcised his son. As soon as the son was circumcised, as soon as obedience to God's commandment concerning circumcision, by the way, circumcision was a sign of their covenant at, on Mount Sinai. That covenant that they had between them and God that was a national covenant not an individual salvation covenant, but a national covenant. He was to lead the nation out. And as that nation's leader, they were following God who was leading them out. And he was to have a sign of that that covenant with God, which was circumcision. And he did not circumcise his own son. So in the end, God put him on a sickbed. So that's a great story that talks about this idea of how he put, he said, I'm going to put Jezebel on a bed of sickness. It's exactly, if you go to Exodus chapter four, verses 24 to 26, you'll see that storyline of Moses being put on a sick bed. And then God restores him as soon as he, obedience is performed. So what do you think his point is with Jezebel? What's he trying to, to do with her? Get her no. And cause her to do what? to repent. It's really interesting though, because just before that he says, I have given her time to repent, but what? She doesn't want to repent. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to put her on a bed of sickness. And if you're sick long enough, maybe you'll come to your knees and repent, right? Now, he doesn't tell us whether she does or she doesn't. It never gives us the rest of the story. What it shows us though is how God will judge that, and some of the steps that God will take. So there's a there's a possibility of a variety of kinds of judgments. I listened to a sermon this week. How much time do I have? Okay, I listened to a sermon this week, and I've got it on my notes here for you. Uh, Jack Hibbs did a teaching in Romans chapter one. Great sermon, um, and in there he talks about the doctrine. Of God's wrath, which is basically what we're talking about here—judgment, right? This authority to rule and the rulership, and the need for repentance—and he talks about the doctrine of God's wrath. And he says, throughout all of Scripture, there are basically five types of wrath of God—the way that God can deal with humanity and the world on the whole. Okay, so sometimes this wrath is against an individual; sometimes it's against a nation; sometimes it's a cons- uh, uh, situational. So let me just read you that. what he says is there's cataclysmic wrath. That would be things that can happen, you know, a, a, in a world issue. Um, uh, eschatological meaning in time wrath. We've talked, that's what we're studying right now. It is es- escholo- eschatology. Um, there's circumstantial meaning it's for the specific issue like for instance romans 1 where he says you have uh turned your bodies over to things that you should not be doing and therefore in your flesh i'm going to turn you over so that you will receive the due penalty of it so it could be that there are times in you know in the life of individuals that god could do like what he's going to do with jezebel put put sickness upon her body so that she will repent and that is a possibility, and scripture covers that. We see it with Moses. We see it here with Jezebel. We, we see it in many other places in scripture. Romans chapter 1 is a, is a really good example of that. Then there's national wrath that God can come against nations. And we know that, as a matter of fact, when we are looking at the book of Revelation, what kind of judgment or wrath is coming at that time? What is, it says Jesus is coming. He's coming to wage war. Wage war with who? The nations, right? It's the nations. It's national wrath and roar. And specifically, it's for which nation that he causes them to repent. He's going to purge and purify and refine one third of them. Who are they? Israel. Israel, the nation of Israel, whom he made an original covenant with, who broke that covenant. And God says in Ezekiel 36, in that day, I will create a new covenant with them, a covenant not like the old one, which they broke, And he said, I will uh, remove their heart of stone. I will give them a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within them and I will cause them to walk after my ways. Is Israel as a nation doing that yet? No. What is the book of Revelation all about? Bringing Israel to that place of salvation as a nation. Isn't that awesome? It's so exciting. Okay, and then there's individual wrath, which we all understand real well, where each person individually is held responsible. We looked at some verses on that, and I wish we had time to cover all those, but um, God will judge fornicators and adulterers in Hebrews 13. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, also in verse 18. Um, Romans 1, where you may suffer illness related to your various sinful, uh, activities. It's basically, it's consequences even sometimes of just doing what you do. Sometimes you may even repent in the midst of it, but guess what still happens? A consequence may still come. That's just the way it is. And that is still considered the wrath of God. It can fall upon a person, even though, for instance, a a person may commit murder. They may go to prison and are on death row. And some time during those years that they sit on death row, they may repent and come to know God, but guess what still happens? They still get executed for what they did. That's that's a, a form of God's wrath that falls upon people. It's it's impartial. It's an impartial kind of a judgment that just is a consequence for sin. Okay. So we, we looked at Jesus, the symbol, symbolism and the imagery. We looked at what their rebuke was down to the just the bare bones on it, that it's what they did to tolerate and how they began to commit those acts with her um what else do we need to cover um the old testament jezebel was a great story did you guys enjoy looking at that when you well, she was asked you at one point to in your homework to compare the old testament jezebel with the new testament did you do that um if you can tell me which page that's on that would be thank you i've got so many extra sheets in here I can't find 47. I found it. Okay, so tell me what you what you saw were the similarities between the Old Testament Jezebel and this New Testament, who, by the way, Jezebel may or may not actually have been her name. I would venture to say it was not, really her name. It was, again, just like all the other imageries that are given in this book, it was a symbolic title or name that God gave to this woman because her behavior was just like the Jezebel of the Old Testament, who these Jewish new Christians now would have totally understood. So what were the similarities?
1: She led her husband astray to worship Baal and sacrifice to him. Mm-hmm. And the New Testament leads Jesus bondservants astray to eat foods and
0: you know, Yes. So it's it's a tit for tat, right on point there. What else? To the yeah, right. Okay. There you go. Well, that was a pretty obvious one. And she led her husband astray in the case of the Old Testament, Jezebel, who was Ahab, who was obviously not, was not a hard job because he already married outside of what he was supposed to. He was already acting sinful. In a way, that's a good good point to make though. In the church, who is it in the church that's usually easily led astray? Those who are already going astray in other ways, Right. Their heart is already not fully committed to God. Number one, I can tell you right now, this is why precept is so important in your life. You must know your doctrines so that people who come in, if they teach you anything other than what God has said, the Bereans were told this, they're of more noble-mindedness than the Thessalonians. Why? To see if what Paul was teaching them was true. Paul was being checked out. Are you right, Paul? Is it accurate, Paul? Is this really what God says? Oh my goodness, Paul, you're right. I visited Thessalonica uh, and they had just done some excavations and they had them up there and little plaques have been put up there. One of them was talking about a church, the remains of a church that had been established 300 years after Paul's visit to Thessalonica. That's how old they were and that's how they dated them to 300 years. Do you know how long Paul was in Thessalonica? Three weeks. He was there three weeks. And 300 years later, they were still building a temple and the temple was dedicated with Paul's name on it. That's the power of truth when it's preached. That's what we are to hold fast to. That's where our authority comes from. When God says to us at the end of this, to overcomers, I will give you authority to rule in the eternal kingdom, in the king, in the in the ki, the millennial kingdom. When I return to this earth, you will rule and reign with me. I will give you that authority. But you must do what right now. You must rule and reign in the church. You must keep the church pure, purity of sin. There, you should not allow the 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 leaven of sin to enter in. And if you see it there, you need to rebuke it. It needs to be rejected. It needs to be, you have to correct sinners that are within the household of faith. If how you, well, hopefully you have a relationship with them and you're able to I would be able to go to Diane and say, Diane, you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. And she would accept it. I, I'm certain she would. She would not have a problem. And she could do the same to me. She could come to me and correct me if she saw me out of line on, in my immoralities or infidelity to God in any way. Immoralities, would you say that's a really big subject for us today? Do we see a lot of immoralities going on within our churches? Give me some examples of things that you know that are just shocking.
1: Well, there was an example in this church years ago. The, uh, one of oh, the yes. teachers
2: mm-hmm.
1: was um, a porn addict. Yes. And first, somebody can't. You asked the question, and, and that was a cross-reference. You first go individually to the person. Yes. If they won't listen, then you take two or three with you. If they won't listen... And you take the, the case to the church elders, and then they have to call him before the, the congregation. congregation
0: and... Rebuke them. That's right. There is a process. Matthew 18, I think it was, correct, is the one that tells us what that process is. It was in our homework to, to do this week. Um, let me see if I can... Yes, it was. I remember seeing it on TV before I was a member and Pastor Rob was being interviewed concerning it. It was very sad. This man was very deceptive. He had he had kept it very well hidden and he was actually working as a as a key figure of leadership in our church and he murdered his wife. Oh, that one, too, yeah. That oh, that was another one? Yeah. Oh, okay.
2: There was <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, this man was also into pornography and hookers, and he was traveling a lot. I mean, so it happens, guys. It is not isolated. I mean, every church, and this is not unique to this church, every church suffers with this if we don't keep purity of teaching in there. And you also have to be very aware of what other people are doing. Sometimes, though, you won't know. And that's when you have to rely on God to either expose it or to deal with it himself. What is one of the ways, according to what we looked at here, that God can deal with people if they aren't exposed openly? What does he say he's going to do to Jezebel? put her on a, of the sick bed. So God can actually inflict his own judgment. And if they're an unbeliever, he goes on to talk about her children, who I think in the case of the children, he's literally saying about them, they're not even believers. Because one of them, it says that he will kill her children with pestilence. Do you know what it means to kill? The de- did you do a word study on that one? Okay. Death of the body. It's, it's death of the body. That's right. So it's the de- it, you're right. It could be still a believer that just is physically taken to death. Who else in scripture was physically killed because of sin? They committed a sin. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts. That's right. And they were believers. They were operating within the church. They had sold property. They lied to the Holy Spirit, the scripture says, and God killed both of them one by one. He gave them opportunity to make a, a confession and to repent. They didn't, just like Jezebel, they didn't, they didn't do it. In their case, he didn't bother with a sickbed. Why do you think God did that in the early church? Why would he immediately kill someone like that for, for that kind of a sin?
1: because of Levin, you
0: know, you get that, you allow that
1: mm-hmm. to happen. Everybody knew what they were Yeah, doing, exactly. Had
0: to make a, a spectacle. There you go. He had to make a spectacle. Where were we in the birthing of the church when Ananias and Sapphira were put to death for that sin? Really? Right yeah. at the beginning. So God was birthing something brand new. It was called the church and it was, it was a church of grace. And it's sure easy for the church to fall into. Oh, it's all by grace. Didn't Paul have to address that? Oh, if it's all by grace, then may I just sin all the more? And what did he say? May it never be. May God forbid. Exactly. So all these, these qualities that we're seeing in here, we see cross-references in scripture that support it and teach us that these are actual. But what's more important, honestly, we're done. Our time is, is up here. But listen, this, this importance of of holding fast to your doctrines, not violating your known doctrines, and understanding your context. Every single letter, you have to do this. If you're going to really handle everything that is within it accurately to get to a sound interpretation. Is it a lot of work? Yeah. Is it, do you think it's important that the church today do this for every single one of these letters? Who are these letters written to? us they're written for this time in history the things which are the segment division we're in is the church age we are in the church age so all seven of these letters are written for you and I for our edification for our learning that we might walk righteously with God and we barely really touched on all the things that were in your homework were there any other points of interest that you wanted to bring up
2: Reading and it's in the 28th chapter, 28th verse of chapter 2. And it the 28th verse reads, and I will give him the morning star, right? And it is has got false reference there to Revelation 22 verse 16.
0: Yeah, and it says that Jesus is the bright and Jesus morning
2: super
0: yes, but but. Hold on to understanding that fully because we're gonna go back and do the overcomers at the end of this. We're gonna do all seven letters and then one whole lesson is gonna be on the overcomers. But look at the context of where that's said. What is said just before that I'm gonna give him the morning star. He says, as I have received what? Authority from my father. I'm receiving authority from my father I'm going to give you the morning star. So what is he giving to us? Authority. 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 And yeah, authority. and Jesus is authority, obviously. He is our authority. But if you are an overcomer, you already have Jesus for salvation. So he's not talking about your salvation. He's talking about the power of authority that he's going to give to you. And in the context of this, the overcomers are going to receive that when. When do we receive that? That's another part of this we haven't talked about yet. So hang on to that, because those are, those are talking about rewards. We didn't even address that. It's a, it's a subject that comes up, but we didn't touch on it. Wow, that was really good. I wish we'd had, yay, nice study time. Thank you, guys, and I'll see you all next week.